morning and night. So glad uh, you joined us today as we launch a new series called Difference Maker, based on the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. We're going to spend about the first half of the summer or so walking through a good chunk uh, and learning some great lessons from this uh, important Old Testament book, Nehemiah. He's one of my favorite biblical characters. Nehemiah is a book about how God can use one ordinary person to transform or, or, or maybe to resurrect a city and a people for God. Nehemiah was a difference maker. He wasn't a pastor type. He wasn't a prophet or a priest. He wasn't a warrior or a king. Nehemiah was just an ordinary guy, a guy like you or a guy like me that God used in extraordinary ways to see God's purposes prevail. God used him to make a difference in his generation, to bring glory to God and to bring God's kingdom to a city and allow the world to see and know that he is alive and at work in his people. It's an amazing book, and I believe God has some great stuff in store for us as we dig into it this summer. Well, a lot of the book centers around Nehemiah and the people he's leading, rebuilding a wall. This book is not primarily about a construction project, thank God, right? It's, it's, it's primarily about seeing God's kingdom realized, about seeing God's people energized and focused and laboring on God's dreams and his priorities and his vision for our lives, for our churches, for our communities. I think one of the reasons I love Nehemiah so much is because I want to be a difference maker too, and maybe you do too. I want my life to count. I want to live my life every day with purpose I want to follow God and take risks of faith as I follow him. I don't want my life to be stagnant. No, I want to see God's visions and God's dreams realized in my life and in our church. I want to see lives impacted in eternities, altered and transformed as we see his kingdom come in powerful ways. I even want to see transformation come to our city, in our region. I want to see God's name lifted up and see scores and scores and scores, hundreds of people eventually come to know Jesus. And I want to be a part of it. I think all of us have in us a desire. Every one of us has a desire to make a difference, not just to tread water or slide through life. We want to feel that the world has become a little bit more like God wants it to be because we have been alive and because we have been here and we have been a part of it. And that's why we're looking at Nehemiah this summer. It, it, it's a great lesson on how our lives, how we can live our lives in a way that we become difference makers. And I know for many of you as well, that you have that desire and that heart, a desire to make a difference, a desire to see your life count too. It's part of our, our DNA as a church and part of what brings us together is that desire to make a difference in our world for Christ. And I think God is so pleased by that. Uh, I want you to hear that, but sometimes I think we can, it's easy to get a little off course or just to get a little bit stagnant in our lives with him. And that's why I think this summer can be so important because we're going to be looking at the story and, and have opportunity for all of us just to kind of open up our hearts and invite God to speak through us, uh, to us through a guy who actually lived his life as a difference maker, who actually, who God used to transform his generation for God's kingdom. Now, let me give you just a little bit of context here, if I can, uh, where Nehemiah fits into this overall story of God's book, and especially the Old Testament, the overall story of Israel. Right, just a quick timeline. Moses, as you may remember, uh, led the people of God out of Egypt, where they lived as slaves, and into the promised land that happened somewhere around 1300 
BC, give or take a few hundred years or so. But then, then there was a season where the people of God occupied the promised land. They got to go in and live there. It was the nation. It was the, their home. And amazing era in there as well. But then came the time of the kings, right? First there was Saul, uh, and then came David. And when David was king over Israel, that, that's when Israel sort of reaches its peak. And then comes his son Solomon, and that begins the slow, long decline of Israel. Finally, Israel's pretty much finished off as a nation by the Babylonians around 586 B.C. Jerusalem, in fact, is completely wiped out. Solomon's temple is burned to the ground. Every building was in ruin and was in rubble, right? I mean, everything was wiped out. And many Israelites, in fact, tens of thousands uh, of their people are sent into exile, especially those that were in the upper classes. They were hauled off to Babylon. Sometime after this, the Babylonian Empire is defeated by the rising Persian Empire. And this is good news for Israel because a significant number of the Israelites were allowed to return to Jerusalem, allowed to return to the Holy Land. Around 50,000 or so returned to Jerusalem. And that's sort of the setting for our story. Nehemiah, in this season, he lives in Persia, in the capital city of Susa, around 444 B.C., over a century after the Israelites have been sent into exile. Nehemiah has lived his entire life uh, in Persia. If you look at a map of the area surrounding the Persian Gulf, you'd see that Nehemiah is a long, long way from home, <laughs> long, long way from Jerusalem. He is serving in the Persian government as a cupbearer to the king. Uh, it's actually the king, Artaxerxes I. Uh, it, it's a pretty good gig. Now, it's way more than just tasting wine uh, before it's presented to the king. Actually, it's sort of a position of status because the, the uh, cupbearer to the king is one that would taste the wine and the food ahead of time to make sure it wasn't poisoned, right? You never had to ask a cupbearer how their day was. If they were alive, it was a good day, right? Their day was going pretty good. Now you might ask, why in the world would anybody want a position like that? Why would they want to, well, it, like I said, it was a big deal. A cupbearer in that day was, was way more than a butler. It was somebody that the king would trust daily with their lives. Somebody who had direct access to the king. Someone who would likely live in the palace. There's at least one case uh, in history, in the ancient world, where the cupbearer was actually the number two position in the empire. And so Nehemiah was doing really well for himself. He was very well connected to the king. He was on a successful career path. His life was going pretty well up until this point, until one day. And this is where we're going to pick up the story uh, in Nehemiah chapter 1, starting with verse 1. I'm just going to walk through it. It says this. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, the 20th year of the reign of Artaxerxes I, while he was in the capital of Susa, Hanani, one of his brother, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. Listen to this, verse 3. So they said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province, and they are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. Now again, this is just not a, a, a report about some trouble that they had with architectural sites of Jerusalem. The fact that the city had been destroyed or the wall was burned down. It's way bigger than that. 
You have to keep in mind a couple of things. First of all, you have to remember Israel's history, right? They, their, their identity as a people was that as God's chosen people. They had lived as slaves before. They had had no home, no country of their own. They were a people without a land, without a, a home. But God had broken in and had rescued them and had miraculously led them out of slavery through the desert and eventually given them what they referred to as the promised land. Right? It's God had given them this land. It was a gift, an inheritance from the living God that he supernaturally gave to them. It was a big deal. Not only was it a good land and was it the place that was home. No, this was bigger than that. It represented a gift and a history and a people who they were at the core of their identity. They were God's special possession and he had given them this land. The second thing you got to remember is that Jerusalem, especially the capital city of the promised land, was thought and referred to by the Israelites as the city of God. The temple was there, the place where God's manifest presence was, was to dwell in their midst. The Israelites thought of Jerusalem as the place where God was. And so when Nehemiah gets this report that the city is in ruins, the gates have been burned, the city wall is in shambles, it's way more than just a report about some buildings that have been broken down and destroyed. It means God's city, in their minds, God's presence was lost. The land given to them by God as their inheritance, it was no more. There was no protection for the people, no home for them, no temple for their God, no leadership, no direction, no plan, no hope. They were vulnerable. The people of God felt lost. No evidence of God's favor, no evidence of his presence or his power. Everything in their mind was lost. Let me just pause and just say, man, I wonder if us ever feel that way. I wonder if any of us feel that way. Any of us feel vulnerable or afraid these days? Any of us feel disillusioned by God, frustrated that he isn't more visible in our culture or surroundings these days? Any of us feel like maybe we've lost God's presence, like we're not as close to him as we once were, or, or feel like we're in a spot where there is no hope in our current reality? You're so friends that you are in the right place today because God's got some great stuff to share with us some great lessons that we can learn from Nehemiah. And, and, and here's what I want us to focus in. How does Nehemiah respond to this crisis? Well, he responds in three ways. And I want us to just sort of walk through this passage and look at the responses because this is how difference makers respond to hardship. It's how difference makers respond to injustice. It's how difference makers respond to when, when what they see doesn't align with what God's plans or God's dream is for their world. So we're just going to kind of walk through this. How does, how does Nehemiah respond? Well, the first thing it says is that uh, Nehemiah, he, he sat down and he wept. Verse 4, when Nehemiah hears about the state of Jerusalem, when I heard these things, he said, I sat down and I wept. For some days, he says, I mourned. E.W. Tozer, one of my favorite authors, says, It's doubtful that God can use a man or woman greatly until he has hurt or broken them deeply. Nehemiah was broken. He was devastated. And so he wept. It says, for days. 
Now, Jerusalem was almost a thousand miles away. It would have been pretty easy for Nehemiah to just sort of shake this off as, oh, that's bad news. Oh, that's too bad. The people in Jerusalem way over there are struggling. Sucks to be them. It would have been easy for him to have that kind of mindset, but that's not how it hits him. I mean, Nehemiah is living in the king's palace. He's eating and drinking at the table of the king. He's probably watching his favorite shows on the king's huge 8K Ultra HD TV, right? He's, he's posing for selfies with the king himself. Life was pretty good for Nehemiah. It would have been easy just to, to dive back into his life as the king's right-hand man. It would have been easy to numb his sadness with wine and women and song. He could have just entertained himself to death. He could have numbed it with alcohol and all kinds of things, but he didn't. Instead, he leans into the pain, and he grieves, and he weeps, and he laments for days, it says, for days. He allows himself to feel the pain. Here's the amazing thing. It's counterintuitive, but oftentimes the things that break our hearts are actually God opening up our eyes to opportunity, perhaps even a calling that he has put on our lives to make a difference in a particular area. Generally, in the heart of a difference maker, before there is a vision of what ought to be done, before there is action, there's this intense, passionate frustration over some area where God's will is not being done on earth. One of my favorite examples of this is a guy, a guy by the name of Bob Pierce. He's the founder of an organization called World Vision that literally feeds and cares for millions and millions of starving kids around the world. It all began when Pierce made a trip into communist China to do evangelistic crusades, an amazing feat in itself. While he was there, thousands of people came to Christ during his four months of evangelistic rallies, but something happened that he was not expecting during his time there, and it just wrecked him. He got a, a picture close up of hunger, of children who were literally starving to death. A compassionate Pierce was hooked. His daughter would later write, my father went to China, a young man in search of adventure, but he came home a man on a mission. Pierce later wrote these haunting words in the flyleaf of his Bible. Let God, let my heart be broken with the things that break the heart of God. He started dragging the movie camera around Asia. Pierce would show pictures uh, of, of these kids to church audiences all across North America. And he would plead with them and raise money for them and plead with the people to adopt a child to keep them from starving to death. In 1950, he incorporated his personal crusade into the organization World Vision. He was broken. He was crushed by the kinds of stupid poverty that don't have to exist in a world of plenty. And he was just broken over it. Or I think of another one of uh, kind of my heroes in some ways called William Wilberforce, uh, who was uh, kind of known, well known in England several hundred years ago for being the person that pretty much single-handedly abolished sla the slave trade, abolished slavery uh, in England. 
He'd bring a bill before, uh, before the lawmakers year after year after year to outlaw slavery, and he would get defeated time and time and time again, and yet he continually was burdened. He described it even as being haunted by slavery, uh, and by slaves who longed to be free. He dreamt about it. He couldn't get it out of his head. He was broken over the cause of slavery to the point where, I mean, it almost cost him his life a number of times. Before these people had a vision for what they ought to do, they had sort of a burning sense of outrage in their own souls, their own hearts that could not be quenched. Like Popeye the Sailor Man, they reached the end of the rope and they said, that's all I can stand and I can't stand no more. Right? I've got to do something. It's interesting and it may seem a little counterintuitive again, but instead of trying to distract themselves or ease their sense of discomfort, these men and women, these difference makers, would deliberately expose themselves to whatever it was that was bothering them, slavery, poverty, or whatever else. They deliberately expose themselves to this. They watch it, they live it, they study it, they draw close to it, so that the fire inside of them actually intensifies and begins to burn brighter and brighter and brighter. That's where difference making often begins. Well, I wonder if there are some, if there's some area of injustice that's driving you crazy these days, that's, that's driving you to the point of tears. It could be that you see racial injustice, like we've all come to face to face with this week, uh, with the, the, the video that came out of George Floyd in Minnesota, and your blood just boils. Now, let me just be clear. If you are a follower of Jesus, your blood should boil when you see stuff like this. I teared up as I watched the video, and then I got mad, right? Because that kind of racism, that kind of brutality, it's just wrong, right? But, but, for, but for some of us, it's more than just the, the general sense of injustice. For some of us, we can't get this out of our heads. And it's not just George Floyd, but it's story after story after story after story. It's way more than just reacting to this one. It's the issue of racism in our country. And it's like a calling. It is haunting you and keeping you up at nights. If you can't get it out of your head, you can't get it out of your heart. If it's breaking you down, I, can I just say, friends, maybe you should take note because that could be an indicator. It could be the first sense that God is calling you to make a difference. And maybe not just a difference out there, but a difference here in our church and in our city. Peoria has all kinds of issues going on uh, when it comes to race, all kinds of still separation, all kinds of uh, injustices that are happening right here. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's there for a reason. Maybe God is bugging you about it and he has put a fire in your soul because he's asking and calling you to make a difference. But maybe it's different than that for you. Maybe it's maybe it has to do with kids or whatever. Maybe kids that are that can't read or those with special needs or kids that are getting bullied in schools or neglected or suffering abuse at home or whatever. And you react. And of course, all of us react as Christ followers. But you react maybe ten or a hundred times more than others. This breaks your heart. It keeps you up at night. It keeps you falling down and weeping again and again. 
Or maybe it's an issue of marriages that are falling apart. Maybe it's your own marriage. Or maybe it's just marriages in general in our church, in our, in our region that are falling apart. And just it burns in you. It breaks your heart as you see families torn apart. You're like, I have got to do something. But there's just this uh, issue inside of you that's just welling up. This fire that's welling up. Pay attention, friends. Maybe it's people who are bound up by addictions or women and kids who are being human trafficked, people that are being used and abused. Maybe it's people who are bound up by fear or living in, anxiety, in great amounts of anxiety in the current crisis. Maybe your heart just breaks and more than anything, you just want to see them experience fear. When we start seeing those kinds of patterns in our lives, rather than just trying to numb it with another Netflix binge, Rather than trying to drown it with alcohol, distract it by busyness, maybe we should lean into it and listen. Because you might hear the voice of the Holy Spirit saying, I'm calling you to make a difference. Step into the calling I have for you. Friends, God has great purpose for you and for me. Don't miss it. That's what happens for Nehemiah. There's something burning. He hears this story. He hears the, what's happening in the city of God. And he is brokenhearted. It says, I sat down and I wept for days. And I fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. For Nehemiah, he's broken over the condition of God's people, God's city, God's kingdom. And God is calling him to do something about it. Let's go to the second one. This one just really struck me this week. Second thing difference makers do, second thing Nehemiah did, and that we need to take note of as well, is that he knelt down and he prayed, right? Verse four says, when I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. For some days I mourned, but I didn't just mourn. I mourned and I fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. For days he prayed. I mean, I love Nehemiah's instant response. He's brokenhearted, maybe even outraged. He's frustrated over the state of things in God's city and over the people of God. He's broken. And how does he respond rather than numb it or entertain it, rather than posting some sort of a nasty uh, post naming, name calling, and whatever else on social media or taking it out on those around him? No, no. He knows where to go with his discontent. Where does he go? He takes it to God. He prays, and he prays, and he prays for days, it says. In chapter 2, two we learn that he fasts, and he prays, and eventually he starts forming a vision and a plan, but he prays about it for four months. In verse 6, we learn that he prays night and day. He's crying out for God to intervene in this injustice. He's, he's praying for God to open up an opportunity for things to be made right. In fact, the whole rest of the chapter, pretty much, that we're going to look at is a prayer that Nehemiah prays. And listen to this. It's the first of 12 prayers recorded in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is only 13 chapters long, and yet it records 12 of Nehemiah's prayers. Let me just ask you for a second. How big of a deal do you think prayer is to Nehemiah? Is it just sort of a leftover thing, God bless my plans? No. It's central. It's absolutely critical to his life. His story is saturated with prayer from beginning to end. He understands that there is no way that he can do what needs to be done on his own. 
He is 100% dependent on God. And honestly, like I think he's 100% convinced that God will answer his prayer as well. Nehemiah understands, as Craig Grishelli puts it this way, he says that when we invoke the name of the God of heaven, that God plus one, God plus me, plus an ordinary person, God plus one is always a majority. Isn't that great? When we align ourselves with God, God uses us oftentimes to change the world, to make a difference for his kingdom, for his glory, for his purposes. So often when we are brokenhearted over something, when we see injustice, when things are not the way that they are meant to be, we respond in all kinds of other ways. We stress, we get anxious, we take it on ourselves. We try to take things into our own hands. We get depressed or angry or cranky or whatever. But when Nehemiah hears this news, he takes it to the Lord. He understands that if it's important enough to cry about, it's important enough to pray about. He, he understands that if it's big enough to worry and stress about, it's plenty big enough to pray about and invoke and bring it to the God of heaven. I wonder when the last time was that you or I were so broken, so convinced that we needed to see God bust into our lives or into our workplace or into our family or neighborhood or community or church or whatever. When was the last time that you or I spent the night in prayer, day and night for days? Or when was the last time that we prayed and prayed and prayed about something for months on end? Listen to this. Perhaps we aren't seeing God use us like he did to Nehemiah. Perhaps we aren't becoming difference makers like Nehemiah was simply because we don't pray like Nehemiah prayed. Let's look at this prayer that he offers real briefly. I'm just going to kind of comment as we go through it. It says this, starting with verse 5. Then Nehemiah said, he prayed, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and, keeps his, and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer that your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I mean, he starts out praying and remembering who he is praying to, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who is faithful. He isn't just focused on his problem. He's focusing on the Lord. And then he goes on and moves into this next section, which is confessing both his sins and the sins of the people. And he says this. He says this. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, we can, I confess the sins that we have committed against you, God. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, the decrees, and the laws that you gave to your servant Moses. Man, I, I think we underestimate the power of of confession sometimes confession that cleanses our souls that that, that warns, brings on god's grace to smother all over us that opens back up that flow of his spirit between us and him man i love the way nehemiah just just he just says it's not it's not just them it's me it's we god we have sinned against you would you forgive us would you forgive us for, for losing our, our hope or, or, or getting distracted or, or ways that we weren't living full on for you? Would you forgive us, God, that we 
And then he quotes God to God. I think this is great. Remember your promises and be merciful and faithful as we turn back to you. He says, remember the instructions you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations, verse 9. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if you, your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, if they've been scattered all over, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Verse 10. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let uh, go on here. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. And then listen to this. He, the, the last thing he kind of prays here is he prays, give me favor as I step out in faith, as I, as I move to action, as I try to build your kingdom. Would you give me favor as I follow you, as I live for your, give your servant success today, it says. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man, in the presence of the king. Now, the first step of a difference maker is that he sat down and he wept over what was wrong. The second thing is he knelt down and he prayed and he prayed and he prayed again. And then thirdly, he got up and he took action. <laughs> Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man, in the presence of the king. And then uh, chapter 2, verse 1 says, I was, or it says, I was the cupbearer of the king. And then chapter 2, verse 1 says, In the month of Nisan, of the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. And from that moment on, he this plan unravels, right, of the action that he is taking in going before the king to ask for um, an opportunity to go and make a difference in Jerusalem. I mean, most of us, I think, when we hear about a mess someplace else in the world, when we hear that the walls are down, we'll say, well, that is too bad. You know, somebody ought to do something about that. I mean, sometimes I think we're tempted to give ourselves credit because we have good hearts or we feel empathetic sort of feelings about something. Somebody ought to feed those hungry people. Somebody ought to educate those kids. Somebody ought to reach out to those people that don't know Jesus. I'm a, I mean, we, we can't just think, well, I'm against hunger. I'm against poverty. I'm against racism or injustice or brutality. I don't want people to be lost or separated from God. So we got to give ourselves credit for just feeling the right ways or maybe even believing the right things in our head. But difference makers, friends, difference makers actually do something as well. They live this stuff out. Nehemiah hears about the trouble. And even though he's living almost a thousand miles away, even though his life is going really well, he's got a sweet gig. When he hears about it, he's broken. And then he prays. And then he risks, he takes a step, he risks going before the king and he takes action. I mean, next week, Ryan is going to be teaching the message. He'll probably dig into this some more. But this is a huge step of faith that Nehemiah takes. 
He could, he's basically going to go before the king, ask for protection, and even ask to give him carte blanche, right? To, he's going to make some very bold ask, asking the king to provide everything he needs for the journey, for the rebuilding project, everything else, including footing the bill for rebuilding Jerusalem, the city of God. Nehemiah doesn't just stop with prayer. He doesn't just stop with feeling compassion or, or brokenness over it. He is moved into action. Tears turn into prayers and prayers turn into action. And this his action begins where he is already positioned, where God already has a, he, he ends by saying, I was the cupbearer to the king. And that is where he takes action. Nehemiah is broken. I mean, the people are hurting. The walls of God's city are broken down. People are exposed. The city of God is in disgrace. Somebody ought to do something. And Nehemiah says, well, that, it might as well be me. Right? As I mentioned earlier, there's nothing necessarily special about Nehemiah that we know of. He's not a king. He's not a pastor. He's not a prophet. He's not a lot of things. He's an ordinary guy like you or like me that God uses to build his kingdom in a miraculous and powerful kind of way. In a mere 52 days, God works a miracle through Nehemiah. And I think God wants to do the same thing through you and through me. God calls you and he calls me to be difference makers in our world, to impact lives and eternities of those around us. You can't do everything, but you can do something. You can do what it is that God is asking you to do, what it is that he has put in your heart to do. You don't have to be appointed by man. If you are called by God, you can start right where you are. You can start almost right away. So let me ask you some questions. As we kind of wrap up for today, what is it that God is breaking you over? What is it that isn't right that you see and it just makes your blood boil? It makes you weep or it makes you angry or frustrated? Is there an area of injustice that you just can't stand? Is there a group of people that you long to see freed or restored or healed? Is there, is there a part of ministry that keeps you up at night dreaming about it? If so, instead of numbing it, instead of ignoring it, would you sort of lean into that and cause it to fire up within you? In the midst of that, would you be willing to, to quiet your own voices and listen for God in the midst of it? Because it might be the Lord. It might be God calling you to make a difference for his kingdom and his glory and his plans, not your own, but his Next, if, you, if you're sort of recognizing an area, that, a burden that God has put on your heart and in your soul, next, would you move to prayer about it? Not just prayers like God make me comfortable and safe and happy and easy and all that. No, 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 no. no. But remembering that God, the God you're praying to is powerful. He is present. He is at work in our world and he is faithful to the end. Would you cry out for him to move and to work and to change things and to reveal himself and to open up doors of opportunity? Now, let me make a, a clarification here. I think it's interesting. Nehemiah is not praying for a miracle, meaning sometimes I think we can pray for a miracle. Like, God, like, I, 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 um, I see the issues of poverty in our area or, or injustice or whatever else. God, would you just come and magically fix it so that I don't have to actually get involved in it? That's not what Nehemiah prays for. That's not what God wants us to pray for. 
Nehemiah is praying for opportunity. He's, he's, he's got an open hand and an open heart. He says, God, I'm willing, right? I'm willing. Would you work? Would you open up doors that nobody else can? And then if there is something I can do, right? If there's a way that I can be a part of the solution, God, I'm all in. The answer is yes, God. What are you asking of me? And I'll do it. Where are you leading? And I'll follow. I'm all in. Nehemiah doesn't pray like for a passive sort of miracle, like, oh, wash my hands of it. God, you do something. I'm not going to do anything. No, he prays for opportunity for God to miraculously open up a doors, for God to miraculously change things. But he does it by praying for opportunity. God, would you work through me? I'm willing. I'm willing. How do you want to use me to see your kingdom come, to see your will be done in our world? in our city, in our church, in our family, in our neighborhood. Would you be willing to be broken and listening for God's voice in that? Would you be willing to, to move to prayer and really pray earnestly, not just once, not just God, would you, would you work here? Or would you do this? Or would you, but would you allow that fuel in you, that fire in you to drive you to your knees to pray and pray and pray and pray night and day for months for God to bust in and then would you open up your heart and say God how can I step out and make a difference how, where are you leading me to take action and then do it become a difference maker we've got a Franciscan blessing I read across this week I'm going to read to you and I'm going to close in prayer but listen to this it says, may God bless you with discomfort and easy answers and half-truths and superficial relationships so that you may leave, live deep within your own heart. May God bless you with anger at injustice, oppression, and exploitation of people so that you may work for justice, freedom, and peace. May God bless you with tears to shed for those who suffer from pain and rejection and starvation and war so that you may reach out your hand to comfort them and turn their pain into joy. And may God bless you with enough foolishness to believe that you can make a difference in this world so that you can do what others claim cannot be done. Let's pray. Father, I pray uh, just for us as a church, God, as we spend the first half of the summer kind of walking through the book of Nehemiah, Lord, would you... Uh, would you, first of all, set a fire in us, help us to identify what it is, the area it is, or the thing that it is that you have put on each one of our hearts to make a difference in. If it's our family or our neighborhood or our schools or kids or injustice or racial stuff or whatever, then God, would you speak and, and just bring that fire, turn up the heat in our own lives and in our own souls to, so that we can't just st stand by any longer. Lord, I say this fearfully, but would you break us over the things that break your heart? And then would you drive us to our knees? Would we become a people of prayer? People who really do night and day, day after day, week after week, even month after month, are quick to drop to our knees to cry out for you to bust in and make a difference, for, for you to open up doors of opportunity. 
Would you bring your kingdom to bear here in our lives and in our church and in our city and in our world? Your kingdom come, your will be done here as it is in heaven. And then God, would you just be crystal clear? Would you, would you call us up from our knees then to go out and to live with action and purpose, to make a difference in our world? Not for our glory, not according to our plans, but according to yours. Again, may your kingdom come and your will be done. God, we're willing. We're willing. We say, what, where is it that you want us what is it that you're asking of us? What issue is burning in us that you need to that you're sending us out to, to, to have impact, to make a difference in our world? We pray that you would fill us with your spirit, that you give us courage and boldness to follow where you go. And that really you use us to make a difference, to bring glory to yourself, and to see your kingdom come. God, we need you. We need you so much. We love you, we cry out for you, we offer ourselves to you afresh. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to wrap up here. We've got one final closing song. Uh, just another reminder, if, if uh, we usually do our offerings here in this space, and so if you uh, are ready and, and came ready to give as a way to kind of say, I want to keep the mission and ministry of Ignite moving forward and the kingdom of God moving forward in our region. I encourage you to give. You can do so on the Ignite Church app um, or online. And, uh, and yeah, we thank you for that in advance. One more closing song will be done for that.